Welcome to Motherhood Feels. Hindsight is 2020. I'm Dr. Jill Garrett, a licensed psychologist who specializes in maternal mental health and host of Motherhood Feels. Hindsight is 2020. Stay tuned for a most interesting Motherhood Feels interview with seasoned mom Sandy Russo. This is a special remote episode out of picturesque Asheville, North Carolina, where Sandy and her husband Daniel live with their four and one year old daughters, Frankie and Lark. And we can't forget their animal babies, pup Hambone and 27 pound feline, Jimmy Carter. Sandy, who is also employed at AEC as a proposal manager, and Daniel, a realtor with Nest Realty, are former Jacksonville, Florida residents, and our family is fortunate to have them in our close friend crew. Listen in as Sandy talks through her fertility journey, something that is also well-documented in her clever and inspiring Instagram account, Dates with Wanda, all one word. Sandy, who is a natural-born storyteller, will recount her stylish pregnancy slippers, the need for pregnancy shoes that were three sizes larger than her actual shoe size, and offer some great words of wisdom on all things motherhood feels. Check her out next. Hey guys, it's me, Jill. Before we start, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you know when the next episode comes out. And apparently, giving five-star reviews is a cool thing to do too. You can follow me on Instagram at motherhoodfeels, all one word, and head over to motherhoodfeels.com to check out my self-paced online course, Motherhood Feels, before and even after baby boot camp. It walks through evidence-based strategies for healthy coping with all your motherhood feels. The downloadable workbook that comes with the course means you'll have everything you need in one place during this busy season of life. It's perfect for expectant, new, or even seasoned moms and makes for a great baby shower gift. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for being here. Hi, Bill. It's good to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, my name is Sandy. I am 36 years old and I'm a mother of two. Uh, Frankie is my oldest girl and Lark is my youngest. I live in Asheville, North Carolina with my husband, dog, and cat. And um, I like to hike. I like to drink craft beer and wine. I like romance novels. Um, that's pretty much all you need to know about me. <laughs> That's a great overview. And you mentioned being a mom. Let us know how you became a mom to these two girls. So I, I knew I always wanted to be a mom. I don't really know how to explain it. Uh, I knew that it was like more than just a job. I always felt this need to be a mom. I always really liked kids. But I also had this other really weird feeling that I knew I wasn't going to be able to get pregnant on my own. I can't really explain it. Uh, I just have always known since, you know, I knew that I wanted to be a mom, that it was going to be a little bit more complicated than just, you know, you marry somebody, you go have sex and you end up with a kid. Um, so when I met Daniel on one of our very first dates, I sat him down and I told him, you know, I've always wanted to be a mom, but I just get this feeling deep in my gut that it's going to be a little bit more complicated for me. And so it might mean that we have to get doctors involved and, you know, medically do IVF or, you know, adopt in order for me to be a mom. 
And uh, my husband, Daniel, now he agreed. And we kind of knew that that was always going to be a part of our story. So yeah, that's how I ended up the month after we got married in a fertility clinic. (laughs) Yeah, starting our very first IUI, which is um, intrauterine insemination. Um, And we did six rounds of that before we realized it wasn't going to work. And then I went to start the wonderful and stressful and very complicated process of IVF. And that's where we uh, retrieved a bunch of eggs, created our embryos, and um, Frankie was conceived that very first try. So you talked about the IUIs and how you had some, it sounds like six tries. And Mm -hmm. that means that there was a lot of time uh, and emotional energy invested in that, and not to mention finances. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that that was um, probably one of the darkest times of my life. I um, am very close with a large group of women, including yourself. And I was what I considered to be the last one to have babies. And I was really upset sometimes watching all of my friends get pregnant together so easily, what I saw anyways. And it was really disheartening to me to always be the one for almost a full year and a half um, to be kind of left out of the, you know, out of the baby group. So, um, again and again, month after month, we would get this disappointing news and we were spending all this money because our insurance company was stopping us from starting IVF, even though I knew in my heart that that was the only way that we were going to be able to conceive. And we knew that we couldn't adopt because that's also financially extremely restrictive. And, um, I just wasn't sure how I felt about that in general. And so it was just a really heartbreaking and frustrating time in my life. And um, what I did was I created my own Instagram account that was separate from my normal Instagram account. And I found a bunch of women who were also going through fertility treatment all throughout the world. And we became cycle buddies. And we told our stories of going through IVF together online. And it was kind of um, a freeing experience for me as well, because I felt like so many of my, uh, I don't want to say like, easily pregnant friends, but but my friends that didn't have to go through fertility treatment also followed along on that account. And it made me feel special that they would include me, even though my journey to parenthood had been so different Mm -hmm. from theirs had been. So unlike some people where, you know, you have sex and two weeks later, you just so happen to get a positive test and you get to surprise your husband with it or your partner with it. That wasn't our experience at all. There was you know, 10 people in the room when I got pregnant and I took a pregnancy test five days later, literally five days later. And, you know, Daniel had just come in from letting the dogs out and I looked at the positive pregnancy test and he looked at it too. And we didn't get excited. There was no excitement. There was nervous because we knew that the chances of us miscarrying were so high from IVF. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it, there was never a joyful moment where it was like, yay, we're pregnant. Like we felt very robbed of that experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I will just mention that while you were going through the journey, you were also a mom to a lot of the kids that you were interacting with, mine included. And I remember when you made that Instagram account and um, I, I remember sharing it with people I worked with uh, who were going through fertility and how valuable a resource it was for them and how what it sounds like is also been quite therapeutic for you too. Yes, I I really enjoyed 
the people that I met through that account, not only like globally, which you do, I did, I mailed, excuse my friend. I met a lot of people globally um, through being cycle buddies where we all have the same kids that are same age. But then also locally, I had a lot of friends who were like, oh, um, you know, my sister is going through this or one of my friends is going through this and I don't really know what to say to them. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to say like, oh, well, everything happens for a reason or you don't want to say like, oh, you can have my kids because those are hurtful things to say to somebody who's going through infertility treatment. And I really tried to express ways to support people that are going through miscarriage or that are going through infertility. I just wanted to like be as open as I possibly could with what is really a closed door experience for mm-hmm. so many couples. And I've always been an oversharer. That's always been me. So it wasn't that outside of the realm of normal for me to share even this incredibly intimate part of our lives. And I'm glad that I did. I, I joke all the time that we kind of crowdsourced Frankie. Um, and it does sometimes feel like we did. <laughs> well, I think that your Instagram account and your openness have been really helpful for a lot of people. I'm glad that you are also willing to share some of the things that people say, I'm sure with good intention, but that don't work. And would you be willing to share a few other things that people have said along the fertility journey that really didn't work? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, It was one of my biggest pet peeves, uh, not only through infertility, but through a lot of other parts of my life, like when I lost my father and things like that. You just, there are things, platitudes that people say to be polite, but in a lot of ways, um, they are more harmful. One of the main ones that happened all the time was everything happens for a reason or God has a plan for you. And this is no snub against religion. It's just that sometimes when you say that to someone that God has a plan for you, the first thought is, well, then, man, the plan that God has for me must be really crappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it can be really demoralizing um, to be made to feel like God's plan for you is to not have children. Um, and that was, a, that was a tough one for me when people would say that to me. I, um, I'm not a, uh, a person who holds my tongue very often. But that was one where, you know, you just kind of have to sit back and let the emotions wash over you and realize that they don't know what they're saying. They're not saying it to be mean. Um, I think one of the funniest ones that I ever got was somebody telling me uh, to make a vision board and I would get pregnant. Mm -hmm. We all know vision boards are really great for achieving goals and um, they're not necessarily a negative thing. But when it's been scientifically proven that you're not going to get pregnant without the help of modern Mm -hmm. medical science, uh, a vision board's not going to help. So um, that was just one of those roll your eyes moments and just keep on walking. Mm-hmm. The other ones, you know, um, just take a vacation, just stop crying, um, you know, like just have that. Uh, mm-hmm. Scientifically, those things were not going to work for us. We knew this. Um, we trusted our doctors, the diagnoses that we had gotten. We knew that we had to go through IVF in order to get pregnant. And so sort of the belittling of our medical team of our years of trying literally anything that we could, it was really frustrating sometimes. And there are a lot of people who are meeker than I am who wouldn't stand up to people who would say those kind of things. But I never had that problem. So I tried really (laughs) hard. 
in the kindest ways that I could to tell people that those kind of comments are not helpful when you're trying to get pregnant for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, there are websites out there that have, uh, I think you can Google, you know, things not to say and then things to say um, for people Mm -hmm. who are going through fertility journeys. So I I share that with people when I'm working with them as well. Let's go through, you did the IUIs, you got to a point where it sounds like IVF was going to be the way to go. Tell us about that uh, experience. Yeah, IVF was a wild experience. It was um, one of the most interesting, and I, I, a lot of people think this is weird for me to say when I've said it before, but also one of the most romantic experiences I've ever been through in my life. Um, one does not think of a medical office building in which you are in two separate rooms <laughs> as a romantic experience. But for me, the reason why I found it to be romantic with my husband was that it was a clear indicator that both of us really wanted to create life together. And I I found that to be just almost as special as saying vows. And it was grueling and weird, um, like the the whole process of how the sperm is received mm-hmm. <laughs> and the many different surgeries that I had to go through and all the medication that I had to pump into my body. And the amount of people that were there um, when my eggs were retrieved and then, you know, they take, I had, I think it was 13 eggs that were retrieved from me. And of those 13 eggs, they were all inseminated. And then six of them um, became embryos. And that means that they grew for five days in a Petri dish and they got to over a hundred cells. And then at that point they were frozen. Um, and that was on April, in April of 2000 and. 15, I want to say. I can't remember the exact date anymore. But uh, so yeah, we had six embryos waiting in the freezer for us. And it was so strange to realize that we had six chances at having children at this point. And um, we we were really grateful for that opportunity because a lot of couples, especially not on their first try at IVF, are um, that lucky to have six, you know, normal, healthy embryos. Um, and one month later, they thawed out one of the embryos and I went into the doctor's office again. I was given a lovely Percocet and laid down on a table. And I watched as they placed an, you know, a thawed out 100 cell embryo back into my uterus. I watched it on the screen as they did it. And that was the moment that I got pregnant. Um, and that little embryo, that very first one is the one that grew into Frankie. So she's now four and a half. And it's still wild to me every day that I literally watched the moment that I became pregnant with her. Yeah, that is wild. (laughs) And so the other piece that's a little wild is how Frankie and now Lark, uh, spoiler alert, there's another one coming, are kind of created in time. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Lark was a part of that original six embryos that were created. So she just kind of stayed in the freezer for a little bit longer. My first transfer, that's what it's called when you put the embryo back in. I had my first transfer with Frankie a month after IVF, excuse me. And then um, a couple of years later, we decided we wanted to try again. Um, I went back, did some more medicine, uh, went back into the, to the doctor's office, and they thawed out another embryo. And they placed that embryo, but unfortunately that embryo did not take and I ended up suffering a miscarriage. And then a couple of years later, when we were here in North Carolina, they actually shipped my remaining embryos up here to North Carolina. So Lark got to go on a little road trip with three other embryos. We had another transfer and it was successful. And I have a picture of her actually at her 100 cells. It took and Lark is now one and a half. Um, 
it was, it's a very strange experience when I tell people that they're like technically twins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They just didn't share a womb. They were created at exactly the same time. Lark was just in the freezer for a little bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you're pregnant with Frankie and uh, tell us a little bit about the pregnancy experience. What did it feel like for you? How did it go? It was surreal. I will say that. That was definitely a surreal uh, moment in my life. I had tried so long and so hard to get pregnant that once I actually was pregnant, it was sort of a shock. Mm-hmm. And there was never really a moment that I like allowed myself to fully immerse in the joy of being pregnant. It was always terror. Um, there was always some big worry the next, you know, okay, well, we made it out of, you know, the first seven weeks. And so now my risk of miscarriage has gone down so much, but now it's, we've got a high risk, you know, we're going in for high risk. Um, hands and making sure that she's developing correctly. And now we're worried about my, you know, glucose. And now we're worried about, it it just always felt like there was something to worry about. And as a natural worrier, um, I definitely struggled with Mm -hmm. that. Um, But on the other hand, for the most part, my pregnancy was very normal until the very end. Um, I was sick in the first trimester, but everybody's sick in the first trimester. I felt amazing in the second trimester. Um, I ate so many potatoes. I didn't even know what to do with myself. Um, I loved wearing tight little dresses. I loved people touching my belly. I had a really great pregnancy up until the third trimester. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on a cruise through Europe with my parents and my husband. um, And I came back the day I went into my third trimester and it just felt like all of a sudden, my feet exploded. Uh, I could not walk on my feet anymore. The rest of me was okay. But my feet, we laughed. They they looked like busted cans of biscuits. They were so swollen from basically like 34 weeks on. I could barely fit my feet into any shoes, even including flip-flops. I wore bedroom slippers to the office regularly. Every time I would go to the doctor, I was like, I'm very worried about this. Like, this looks like it could be preeclampsia. I'm, I'm very, very concerned. And they're like, oh, well, your, your, your labs came back normal. Every single time we've tested you, you've been normal. Your blood pressure is fine. So I just thought I was fine. Um, and it, as it turns out, which we'll get to in a minute, it was not fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up having to work from home. I literally could not wear shoes anymore. And this is December. Um, and January. I just, it was miserable. And I didn't realize uh, that I was in pretty significant danger. And the story goes that one day I was 37 weeks pregnant and I was on a walk with my friend Emily and her son. And um, I kept complaining that like, I just feel really terrible. I don't know how to describe it. Um, My feet obviously are killing me. And also my face feels very swollen. My tongue feels very swollen. I just feel off and like dazed. I just really can't explain it. And her response back was like, yeah, 37 weeks pregnant just really sucks, doesn't it? And like, I don't know how to describe it, but I just knew something wasn't completely right. Um, And so the next day I called my boss and I told her that I was going to be working from home. And I went to go take a nap. um, And I was laying on a blanket that had patterns on top of the blanket. So like, sort of like built. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up from that nap, the pattern was all over my leg, but it wouldn't go away. Mm. And I noticed my face and my tongue, like I could barely talk really around how swollen my tongue was. 
So I made the decision to um, put an all call out on our neighborhood uh, Facebook page asking if there were any nurses that were home that could come and take my blood pressure because I just had a feeling that something wasn't right. Um, and I'm only 37 weeks at this point. I'm, you know, not full term technically. And I had a friend come over. Her name was Bryn and she is a cardiac patient and always has a um, heart rate monitor in her car, excuse me, a blood pressure cuff in her, in her car. She took my blood pressure. My husband's at work. She took my blood pressure and she just looked right at me and she said, where's your purse? Mm. (laughs) And I said, what's wrong? She's like, I need your purse. You need to get on shoes. We're going to the emergency room right now. I absolutely refused to follow direction. So I was like, no, I need to pack my hospital bag. I need to walk the dogs. I need to do all this stuff first. And he absolutely insisted. She told me that I was in severe danger and that I needed to get to the hospital right away. Hmm. And so I got in the car with her and I tried to call Daniel, my husband, and he didn't answer. And I didn't stress about it because I'm not having this baby yet. I'm only 37 weeks pregnant. And we get to the hospital and she's like, well, let's go into the emergency room. I said, no, no, let's just go to my doctor's office, which is on the second floor. And so I insisted. And instead of taking the elevator, I insisted on taking the stairs. (laughs) And we get into the doctor's office and they're on lunch. And I'm like, well, let's just sit here and wait for a little bit before we like try and get their attention. But my friend Bryn, she knew that something was really wrong with me. And so she insisted, she started yelling back into the back for the doctors to come out. And um, after about 15 minutes, they did assess me. And as it turned out, I was developing preeclampsia and that I was in danger of, um, you know, heart, getting very sick myself and also Frankie being very sick. So after refusing to walk or refusing to ride in the wheelchair to labor and delivery, um, after getting Daniel there, um, it was found out that I was pretty preeclamptic at this point, if that's the right term for it. Um, I was having contractions on my own. And so they decided to start the induction process. Um, so it was a wild ride to get to the hospital. I think that until I was physically in my hospital room, um, I was in complete denial that I was having the baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also sounds like you weren't a very receptive patient at this point either, though I'm glad you followed her suggestions to connect with uh, the, the medical staff. No, I was a terrible patient uh, during my first pregnancy and delivery. Um, I think as a woman, sometimes I feel like we're told or we're expected to hold on to certain pain a lot more than we should. Um, period pain, uh, you know, the pain of getting an IUD inserted, certain things like that. And I just kind of was in that mentality of like, well, it can't be that bad. It's not really that bad. Um, and looking back, it was very bad. And uh, I took my, um, I took this to heart when I had my second daughter, Lark. I definitely paid a lot more attention to my body and to its cues. Um, but my first time around, I just really tried to sort of not bother anyone with my pain, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm also hearing a bit of a hindsight moment there where being able to have a bit of self-awareness and um, a bit of grace uh, around physical symptoms uh, because yes. a bit important, um, or not a bit, a lot important. Yeah. It, uh, the joke is after 36 hours of inducted labor, nothing was happening and nothing was moving and it was time to go have a C-section. And the final straw was they asked me, you know, do you want us to wheel you? I had not had any pain medication at this point at all. 
And they asked me, do you, because I was stubborn, do you want us to wheel you into the operating room or do you want to walk? And I insisted on walking. And so there's, Daniel says his last vision of me before I went into the OR was me walking with a open-backed hospital gown (laughs) with a towel between my legs because my water had broken and just shimmying down to the OR by myself while he's just shaking his head behind me like they should have just wheeled you in. (laughs) I was a stubborn one. I was very stubborn. And like I said, I did 36 hours of active labor and no pain medication. Um, I just felt like I didn't want to bother anyone with the extra steps that would make me more comfortable, if that makes any sense mm-hmm, at all. So, mm-hmm. Well, and then you forgot to put the visual of your feet in there, too. And as a person, oh, God, your feet. Oh, God, yeah, my awful feet. Important. Those things. I, you know, maybe that should be the cover photo for my episode as my feet. <laughs> <laughs> they were impressive. I, uh, I kept my shoes that I specifically bought for that pregnancy. I still have them. They are three and a half sizes larger than the shoes that I normally wear. Um, and, uh, they are just the, the pictures that I have. I still can't believe that those are actually my feet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was something to see. I will give you that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you had this C-section and obviously Frankie is born. Um, anything you want to share about the C-section or would you like to shift right into the postpartum experience? Well, for me, the C-section was a really good experience. Um, I know that that's not the case for a lot of people, but I had a really fun experience in the delivery room. I don't really know how to describe it. Um, I was strapped to the table just like everybody else. And at this point, I had gotten my spinal block and the spinal block was the one thing I was afraid of. And as it turned out, it was perfectly fine, very easy. And I'm strapped to the table and they're letting Daniel walk into the operating room at this point. They're disinfecting my stomach. I'm butt naked on the table. And I felt so good. I don't know how to describe it. I was just euphoric. I was so excited that they were going to let me have this baby. I was so excited to like not feel any pain. And I just looked at Daniel and I just said, Daniel, you got to try this shit. And everybody in the whole entire OR started cracking up laughing. It was just a wild experience. Mm. And I had the nicest um, anesthesiologist. His name was Jason. And I think one of the things that upset me the most is they weren't allowing video recording uh, in the OR at the time. And we didn't have anybody, you know, with us. It was just Daniel and I. And he, you know, gave us the hint, hint, like, hey, turn your live photos on, on your phone so that when you're taking pictures, it's actually a bunch of little tiny videos. And I was like, oh, very, very smart. So um, Daniel is a little bit of a squeamish guy. And so Jason, our anesthesiologist said, look, you sit here in this chair next to your wife's head and I'll tell you when to stand up and then you sit right back down again. And so Daniel was sitting next to me and um, Jason was taking a bunch of photos. The anesthesiologist was taking a bunch of photos for us. And he managed to take a photo of literally the exact moment that Frankie was delivered, but not of Frankie. It's actually of my face. Mm. And you can hear Frankie's first cry in the video. And then you see my face in the space of like relief and surprise. And it is just my favorite, favorite photo. I love it so much. And it's a live photo. I cherish it so much. And my whole experience was really great. I know that that's not the case. And it wasn't the case for my second delivery. But it, I really liked my C-section experience. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. And, um, you know, the recovery itself was very hard, as most deliveries are. But... Um, I wouldn't seem to think about my delivery with Frankie. 
<laughs> That's great. And like you're saying, it's not often uh, something that people have such a great experience with. So it's nice to hear some positive associations with an experience like that. Tell me a little bit about what it felt like when you got home with Frankie. Well, um, ever the annoyingly uh, stubborn patient, I asked to go home a day early. Um, no one should be surprised by that. So I went home a day early and Frankie was always really tiny. She was six pounds, one ounce when she was born because she was 37 weeks. And uh, her APGAR score was great. And so they they said that we could go home. She was breastfeeding like a champ. I wasn't having any problems. My I was healing up well. I walked pretty much right away. And so they sent us home. And for the first couple of days, everything was going well. And then we had her first pediatrician's appointment. And we got there and they took her temperature and they realized that she was, her body temperature was 95 degrees. And we wrapped her in a bunch of blankets there in the pediatrician's office. We did everything that we could. They made us wait for 30 minutes with her and all bundled up and her body temperature just would not come up. So they rushed us to the children's hospital there in Jacksonville. And they immediately put her underneath in the emergency room. They put her underneath a heating lamp. They gave her a spinal tap to check for um, infection in her spine. They put a catheter in. They, um, you know, took a bunch of blood tests because unlike humans, when we get infections, we get a fever. But when newborns get infections, their temperature typically drop. So they were terrified that she had gotten an infection of some kind. Um, and that was, the, the whole experience was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Uh, I was... I had no idea how to like breastfeed around a bunch of tubes, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And we didn't really have any news for anybody because all the tests kept coming back negative. Um, she was perfectly healthy. She was just tiny and cold. Um, so she spent two days underneath what I like to call the public's chicken lamps there at the children's hospital warming herself up. And we were discharged after um, two days. So after that... <laughs> things calmed down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those first, you know, that first week home, uh, we thought we were home and then we weren't home. And it was it was definitely a very scary experience. I should have stayed in the hospital a little bit longer with her, but I'm stubborn. <laughs> well, I mean, when your baby is sick or not well, it's already stressful. But then to introduce all these medical people and interventions, and you're also probably hormonal, recovering, all of those things. And you said, breastfeeding, it does not make for a good experience. No, it was rough. And nobody else was allowed in the room with us. It was just me that was allowed in the hospital room as well because I was breastfeeding. Um, And otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been allowed in because they had her monitored for infection. So they didn't want anything else being introduced. Um, So that was tough too. It was like my first week home with my baby and like, no one could visit us. No one could come in. People wanted to bring us food. People wanted to like support us, but we very literally had to be isolated with her. Um, so that was, that was a little bit sad for me. It was like, you know, we felt like so much of our pregnancy journey had already been quote unquote robbed from us by infertility. And now like our bringing home baby experience was also being robbed from us. Mm-hmm. But I think, I, I think that what that ended up teaching me was that nobody has the quote-unquote perfect pregnancy or perfect bringing home baby experience. I had something in my mind that didn't actually exist. Um, 
And the older I get and the more moms I meet, the more I realize that, that like there is no perfect pregnancy announcement to your whole family. There's always something that goes wrong. (laughs) There is no perfect delivery story. There's always something that doesn't go to plan. Um, There is no perfect like first week home with your kid. Um, It's always kind of a hot mess. So it was a good lesson for me to learn, um, although a, a tough way for me to learn it. Sure. And I think that's a really good point to bring up that there are lots of different ways that people do things and that our expectations oftentimes impact our emotional experience with things. And so we have these inflexible kind of thoughts or, or expectations. It certainly doesn't help us emotionally. No, no, it was very, it was, uh, you know, Instagram is one thing and there are only certain things that are shown about a person's experience or a mother's experience on Instagram, social media, or even like when you're just out to brunch with your friends and you don't really feel comfortable giving all the dirty details. Uh, And I wish I would have known that. I wish that I would have known that there wasn't like just this formula for having the perfect experience um, that everybody has. Yeah. sort of a different and rough experience. It's not, um, it's definitely, there's no right way to do it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And as you bring up that point, tell us a little bit about anything else that you would like to share about postpartum, about your experiences as a mom. Sure. I Postpartum was interesting for me. Um, I was now a mom, as I had wanted to be so badly with all of my friends. But the problem was, is that my baby was significantly younger than everybody else's baby. Uh, and I felt very, very lonely. I was not prepared to suffer from postpartum anxiety, which I did. I had intrusive thoughts. And um, like many other women, I didn't know that that was a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I suffered a lot with just being lonely because my child needed naps and needed to go to bed a lot earlier than my friend's children did. And I just sort of expected that I would be like welcomed into this community with open arms and didn't realize like it takes a little bit of time for your child to be able to interact with everybody else's and they'll interact in a completely different way. Your life will just always be different than your friends that have children's life until pretty much until adulthood. Um, And then the other thing that was tough for me was realizing that postpartum wasn't a finite period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my insurance says it is, mm-hmm. but for me, it wasn't. I suffered from postpartum depression when I weaned Frankie after we finished our breastfeeding journey around five months. Um, I suffered a pretty heavy relapse in, in depression at that point. And then again, you know, Frankie learned how to walk the week that we all went into COVID shutdown. Mm. Uh, and learning to parent a toddler that just learned how to walk at, you know, 14, 13 months when the entire world has shut down and just doing it completely alone, especially after being a person who was so obsessed with community, as you know, mm-hmm. you were part of my community. Um, it was very devastating for me and very isolating. And I went through another bout of depression at that point, which I believe most, most of the world did. But it was a it was a struggle for me to balance um, always having to parent even when I felt my worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've kind of learned, I think, as Frankie's gotten older now that she's four and a half, she definitely understands emotions a lot better. We can have those kind of conversations where, you know, I'm feeling sad about something. I really don't want to go jump on the trampoline right now. But uh, at first, that was really tough for me was being able to voice that to people around me. It was like, I just, 
I'm feeling horrible. Like, and instead it would come out in other ways. It would come out as, as rage or it would come out um, as basically just completely isolating myself from people around me instead of really trying to focus on what the actual problem was and seeking help and getting on medication. And eventually I figured it out, but it took some time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so looking back, I'm hearing you say that uh, medication, support, uh, having these realizations around triggers has been valuable. What are other things that you feel like uh, would have been helpful to have known? Oh, I uh, I thought I was a pretty um, self-aware person uh, until I had children. Um, one of the things that I, I think about pretty regularly is how I wish I would have known how independent I am before I'd had kids. Um, One of my largest struggles that I had when I had Frankie was this sudden loss of my independence. Um, And some of that was self-imposed, don't get me wrong. But obviously, there is a huge loss of independence when you have a child, when you, you become a mom. Um, and I didn't realize how much I had to have alone time. Mm. I'm an extrovert. I love being around people, but I also spend a whole lot of time curled up in my bed watching true crime or reading books. Um, and that was non-existent, mm-hmm. uh, once I had Frankie. And I really struggled with the inability to just like somebody calls and says, Hey, do you want to go out to a dinner at seven o'clock? And I'm like, well, that's when the baby goes down to sleep. Or, you know, Daniel had plans somewhere so he couldn't stay home or having to get a babysitter and the extra cost of all of that financially. um, I struggled really hard with that lack of freedom that came with my first baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a big adjustment for me. And I know it contributed to a lot of my depression and my anxiety was not having the ability to just get up and go. And also some of that was my own mental block, like, Daniel is perfectly capable of being a parent. <laughs> There's no reason why I can't leave her with him to just go on a hike or something like that. But at the time, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around that. And it it was it was a big life change that I was not prepared for. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've brought up a lot of really good points. And I'm wondering if there's anything I haven't asked you about that you wanted to share. I think that the biggest thing that I have learned about this part of my life is that it's not as big of a deal as you think it is. Every single decision that you make as a mom, as a parent, it all leads to the culmination of what your child is going to be like as an adult. And when I parent my kids now, or when I think back on my postpartum time, I always try to remember that my kids don't remember it, that I do. And that I'm never going to parent them in such a way that focuses on their childhood, but on their adulthood. I want a healthy relationship with my kids as they become adults, because that's going to be the most time that I spend with them is after the age of 18. So I try not to think too hard about like, oh, you know, um, this, my delivery experience was with Lark was really bad. And so now I'm so traumatized by that, that I don't seek help to move past it or, I try to make sure that I do get that alone time away from them so that I'm a better parent in the long run and not just today. Um, they are so malleable at this phase. Uh, they don't really remember a whole lot, bless them. Um, and so the times that I feel like I'm doing a horrible job, 
they're probably not going to remember it. They're a lot more forgiving to them, to us than we are to ourselves. Mm. So I just try and give myself a little bit of grace with like, when I freak out and have a moment where I need to go be alone in another room, or, you know, if I feel like maybe I didn't answer one of their questions the best way or any of those things, I just try and give myself some grace because it really is the long run that I'm seeking to parent my kids for, not just the right now. Um, I think that that's probably the thing that I tell myself the most. Yeah, well said. And you have been a very interesting person to hear from. And (laughs) I've known some of these stories, but to get to hear them again and in more detail has been super interesting. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your experiences. Of course. Thank you, Jill. And if anybody does want to see that Instagram for infertility, it is called Dates with Wanda. 